and ask that you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Philippians. We are taking our short break from Luke for this Advent season. Uh, as we looked last week in Daniel chapter 7 and saw there the, uh, the glory of the Son of Man, so also we will see here the humility of the Son of God. Uh, we will see also here some glory as well. There is a, a movement both downward and upward in this passage, and, and we'll see that together. Uh, but we will be studying together the one who came into the world who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And we will see the way Paul calls us to have this same mind among ourselves. Today, reading from Philippians chapter 2, we're going to pick up Paul's thought in verse 5. We're going to read to the end of verse 11. You can find that on page 980 of most ESVs. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 and reading through the end of verse 11. Now, before we go to this word, join me again as we uh, pray that the Lord would bless our reading uh, and our study of it together today. Let's pray. Gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, whom you have sent into the world. We thank you for this word which teaches us about him. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us so to receive it, that we would believe in him, and that you would cause us to live as his people, redeemed from the power of our sin and renewed by your inward work. O Lord, help us to trust you and to follow you so that you would receive glory among your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. A few years ago, the New York Times ran an article. I think sometime in 2017, they ran an article chronicling what they were calling this this new modern epidemic of a publicized humility. The article said that diving into internet, into the social media, you can find this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all, it goes on. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superiority, and luck. When did humility get so vainglorious? Well, actually, that's not a new problem. (laughs) 
come to think of it. It's not a new problem, and the depressing truth is that there is no aspect of our lives that is completely immune to the snare of pride. No aspect of our lives, not even the pursuit of humility. Pride is that uh, that spiritual pestilence that stalks in the darkness, to take the language from Psalms. Pride is that sin, according to C.S. Lewis, through which the devil became the devil. Pride is the sin through which paradise was lost. Pride is the sin that creeps into our, our Christian obedience and it whispers congratulation in our ears. It expects blessing from God and, and accolades from others. John Stott says that in every sphere of Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. Yes, but... How do you do that? How do you pursue something that evaporates as soon as you notice it? Can you ever really, can you, can you ever pursue humility humbly? Is it even possible? Well, that's the point of Paul's argument in Philippians 2. Our passage today really is the, the theological crescendo of Paul's thought that he brings up back in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That's the aim, that's the goal. Nothing out of rivalry, nothing out of conceit, nothing out of pride, but in humility counting one another as more significant than us. And then in verse 5, Paul tells us the way that we do that. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the secret of pursuing humility and doing it rightly. We only make strides when we pay more attention to Christ's example than we do to our own achievement of humility. In Christ, we find the highest form of lowliness, if we could put it that way, the perfect example of humility. In the incarnation, we find a humility so perfect that it has the power to put our pride in its place. Now, many theologians have noticed that in this passage there is a twofold movement. There is uh, a downward bend of Christ's humility. And then there is an upward rise of Christ's exaltation. We're going to follow that breakdown for our passage today. This, this downward bend of Christ's humility and the upward rise of Christ's exaltation. Well, we see first... Uh, this, this upward bend. But before we can admire in, in bits and pieces, before we can admire the theology of these verses, I think it's best really just to step back and to take it all in, to take the wide-angle view of what Paul is giving us here, because Paul is, is presenting to us the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and he's presenting it to us as the greatest possible stooping imaginable. Pick up the, uh, the central phrases as you go along. Jesus Christ in the very form of God, humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death on a cross. That's the contour of, of the downward arc. It's the same as the contour of the hymn that we sing every year around this time. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man. Well, those are the extremes that, 
that encapsulate Christ's humility. There is there's no higher height than the glory of heaven, and there is no lower depth than the shame of the cross, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ has, has spanned the immeasurable gulf between those two in the miracle of his incarnation, his advent and atonement. And we have to begin here with this big picture, really trying to wrap our mind about what exactly it is that Paul is telling us. We have to begin here because throughout the centuries, you may be aware, these verses have been twisted in ways that make less of Christ and of his humility than we ought to make. There are little pieces here that, that if we take them in isolation, if we, if we see them in the wrong context, if we twist them to our own ends, we can really come away with a far different idea than the one that Paul's giving us. And so some teachers latch on in this passage to that, that phrase that he was in the form of God to say, well, Jesus obviously wasn't actually God in essence, no, not really God in himself. He was just in the form of God. Maybe he looked like God. Maybe he acted like God. Maybe he shared some of the attributes of God, but he wasn't really God himself. Other teachers go in the other direction, and they, they grab a hold of this phrase in verse 7, that Christ was born in the likeness of men. Same idea. Maybe he walked like us and, and looked like us, and he spoke like us, but, but he didn't actually become human. It was all just an outward show. Actually, neither of, of these two approaches do justice to our Savior. I think we can, we can conceive of the idea of an utterly transcendent God who remains absolutely separated from sinners. In fact, there is, there's a whole religion that, that believes in that absolutely transcendent God who remains utterly separated from sinners. It's called Islam. And in their minds, the God they serve is one who is, who is far and above. The, the we, we don't have a God who comes down to where we are. And if that is who God was, it's not. It's an idol that they've fashioned. But if, if that was the God that we served, we might call him holy, but we certainly wouldn't call him humble. We can conceive of, of a person who, who tries to masquerade, a, a mere human who masquerade as as a person, from time to time, you see these weirdos out there, and they say that they are, they're the next Messiah, they're Jesus Christ come back, and, and they're not really a Savior, they're just a con man. We can conceive of, of both of these things, but that doesn't do justice to who it is that Paul's talking about here. Nor would it do justice just to go along with, with the culture of Paul's day. We, we see this in our day, but in Paul's day, the, the Greek culture was full of all sorts of stories and myths of the, the so-called gods who, who came down to where humans were, and they traveled incognito for a while. They saw the sights, they enjoyed the pleasures, and then they returned uh, to their, their hilltop, their Mount Olympus, unscathed and untouched and, uh, and, and unaffected utterly by their, their traips among humanity. But the glory of the gospel, the truth of it is that the one true God has come to where we are. The one true God has become truly human. He proved that he was human. He proved that he was human by suffering that death upon the cross. And he proved that he was God by being raised again on the third day as the victor over the grave. We must maintain both his, his utter godhood and his utter humanity in order to have the Christ of the scriptures. That means if we want to see the humble Savior that Paul is showing us here, we have to see the Christ of Christmas morning and the Christ of Easter Sunday. We have to see here the Christ of the creed. God of God, 
light of light, very God of very God, who for us and for our salvation came down and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The God who took on human flesh is the only one who makes sense of Paul's teaching in these verses. He indeed is the one who has stooped low to save his people. And Paul's point here in these verses that, is that if we want to know what humility really looks like, we have to look to him. The amazing thing about these verses, one of the amazing things is that Paul also tells us in these verses about how Christ looked at himself. You know, most other places in the Bible, we, we hear about the incarnation, we learn about the incarnation, but it's all from the vantage point of the observers, those who saw it happening. We hear the angel come and speak to, to Mary and, and to Joseph. We, we read in, in the New Testament, we, we imagine ourselves camping out with, uh, with the shepherds or traveling with the magi. We hear apostolic witness to the miracle of the incarnation, but here, and I think here only, the Holy Spirit re reveals what was in the mind of Christ when he considered the incarnation. Remember, this passage is about a mindset. It's about an attitude, in a sense. It's about how we ought to count, how we ought to reckon others as more important than ourselves. And the greatest example of that mindset is found in how Jesus counted others as more significant than himself. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count. That is, he didn't reckon, he didn't, he didn't consider, it's his mindset. He did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's the mind of Christ. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be clung to or taken for his own advantage. That's what it means. There, there's some debate on, on, on this passage here, and actually this word that's translated as grasp, it shows up only here in the New Testament, and it's kind of a rare form, and we don't even have it uh, elsewhere in, in other uh, first century Greek literature, and so we, we've got to sort of piece it together from what we know of other words that are like it and figure out what it means, but, but essentially it seems to mean just, just holding on to something just clinging to something. And so the King James poetically says that, that Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And that seems a little bit ambiguous, but the meaning is clear, really, if you just pay attention to the logic of the text. What do we see happening here? Well, well, Paul begins with a statement of who Jesus is. And then in response to that, he tells us what Jesus thought and what he did. Well, who is Jesus? Well, he was in the form of God. And yes, that means that he was God himself. Jesus was from all eternity. Before all eternity, before there was a concept of eternity, Jesus was in the very form of God. He is the image of the invisible God, he says to the Colossians. He is the radiance of the glory of God, we read in the Hebrews. God doesn't exist, of course, in a form that is visible to human eyes. He is, he is incomprehensible. He is clouded. He is shrouded in clouds as thick darkness. We can't approach him. We can't see him. We can't comprehend him. And from before all eternity, Jesus shared, together with the Holy Spirit, this invisible, incomprehensible form of God, this essence of who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was in the form of God. That's who he is. He is God in essence. 
All right, well, how did Jesus respond to who he is? How did he, how did he view his own status, if we could put it that way? And Paul sets out a contrast. There's something he did not do, and there's something that he did. What did he not do? Well, he didn't cling to that equality. He had it. It wasn't robbery in the sense that he had to get it for himself. He had equality with God. He is in the form of God, but he didn't count that equality with God something to be held onto and used for his own advantage. But instead, he emptied himself. Instead, he humbled himself. And Christ, who had the highest place, took the lowest position. The one who had every right to be served by all of his creatures entered into creation as one who serves in the lowest form of a servant. And he did it because he counted his status as something to be used. Not for his own sake, but for the sake of others. That's the mindset of Christ. And so he emptied himself. He poured himself out, we might say. He poured himself into the clay jar of human flesh to live in the world as a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one who came and, and knelt down and wrapped a towel around his waist in order to, to rinse the Palestinian dust from the feet of his disciples. He's the one who came and made himself accessible to people who didn't deserve to access him. He came and he healed the servants of, of centurions. He came and he healed the daughters of Gentiles. He came and he, he spoke peace to Samaritan women. He touched lepers and he sent them home to their families clean and healed. He became a minister. He became a deacon, it says in another place. A deacon, a servant to the least of God's people in order to draw them into God's kingdom. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to a cruel and accursed death. In the Roman world, there was not much more horrifying than crucifixion. Dennis Johnson says that to the Gentiles, the cross meant scandal and shame and impotence. And to the Jews, it meant death under God's curse. And that's exactly what Christ became, willingly. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He came to bear the penalty of, of human sin, through, though he himself was sinless. He submitted himself to the, to the demand of God's law. He even submitted himself to the punish, punishment of the law excuse me, prescribed for transgression. In all of it, he was learning obedience through what he suffered. The question was, who did he give that obedience to? No, he, he didn't give obedience to the law. Christ didn't obey the power of death that holds sway over all men. He wasn't a sinner, and so death had no power over him. Christ couldn't render obedience unto death. He couldn't, or he didn't render obedience unto Rome, or, or to, the, to, the, to the Sanhedrin, or to the, the priest who condemned him. Christ gave his obedience to the Father. He was in the world as one who served, but he gave his service to the Father, to the will of God. What does God say in Isaiah 52, 13? Behold my servant. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. We thought he was a curse. That's, 
That's the language there. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to put him to death. Christ was in the world as as one who was obedient, but he was obedient to the will of the Father. And that's what he took upon himself when he, when he entered into this mindset to, to not count equality with God something to be grasped, not to think it robbery. That's what humility meant for the eternal Son. It meant a human life of sacrifice and submission and obedience unto death. It meant a body that could be torn and broken and given over to the curse for the sake of obeying the Father and saving His people. And in the incarnation, we celebrate the one who stooped to conquer. Well, this is what we see in the downward bend of Christ's humility. He surrendered His privilege in order to serve His Father and to save his people. And that prepares us to see the upward climb of Christ's exaltation. Now, as we, as we make a switch in the passage, beginning in verse 9, I want you to notice uh, this perfect balance between the first three verses, the three, six to eight that we've just read, and the next three, nine to eleven. Notice the way that, that Paul has, has set them against one another. In, in verses six to eight, Jesus is the actor. All the verbs are active verbs. He's the one who's doing it. He's the one who, who didn't count equality with God. He's the one who, who emptied himself, who humbled himself. He's the one who became obedient. He is the one who's doing the action. Starting in verse 9, the father acts and the son receives. In the first portion, Jesus descends from the glory of heaven. And then in these verses, God raises him up as the king of creation. And just as in the first three verses, just as there was no greater height from which Christ could descend, so also there is no greater exaltation that anyone could receive than the exaltation that Christ has received in verse 9. Verse 9 says that for this reason, therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's bestowed on him the name that's above every name, highly exalted. This is, this is one of those Pauline terms that he seems to have coined for just this purpose. It's one of these times that he takes several different ideas and just smashes them together. It's the normal word for, for raising up somebody in, in the eyes of others, raising their estimation, exalting somebody. But to the beginning of that word, Paul takes the prefix hyper and he just smushes it on. He is hyper-exalted. He's the only one in all of Scripture called hyper-exalted, super-glorified, we might say, or, or, or raised up. It's a complete reversal. You notice the balance there. The Christ, the Messiah, who was counted as a worm at Golgotha. Well, he's been raised to glory. And every knee and every tongue is going to acknowledge that. The son who had no place on earth to lay his head has been enthroned in heaven. The one who was counted as stricken and smitten, the one who was, was tossed out, the one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, now he's, he's receiving service and worship from angels. You see the balance here. 
God has hyper-exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And up to this point, Paul doesn't tell us what that name is, but we know it. There's a certain drama in, in drawing out the syllables. You can imagine maybe Paul the Apostle writing with a trembling pen, just waiting to, to spell out the letters that will tell us what that name is. And he doesn't tell us yet. He doesn't tell us to the end. But of course we know the name that he has in mind. There's only one name that he could have in mind. Only one name above all the names of the universe. It is the name of the Lord. It is the covenant name of the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D in our Bibles. Yahweh to the Hebrews. Yahweh of hosts. Lord Almighty. The Holy One of Israel. Actually, in verses 10 and 11 here in Philippians, Paul is recalling something that God said back in Isaiah. A declaration that he made in Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 23. This is what the Lord says there in Isaiah 45, verse 23. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, that is only in Yahweh, it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. That's the exaltation that Paul has in mind. Jesus Christ is Yahweh in the flesh. No, no distinction in a sense of one who is God and one who is not God. No, he's, he's being revealed as the one who bears the covenant name of the Old Testament God, the one who says, my glory I give to no other. There is no other God, it is only me, he says, over and again in Isaiah. Every knee shall bow to the Lord, to Yahweh, and now every knee shall bow to Christ. He's revealed in the glory of God's own name. He's raised above all the powers of creation. There's no greater vindication imaginable. There's no greater glory possible than to be acknowledged as the one who bears the covenant name of the Lord. When has this exaltation taken place? Has it already happened? Is it still to come? Well, it has taken place. It's not fulfilled yet. Paul is still looking forward, and, and we're still looking forward to the rest of it, but it's begun. God exalted the man Jesus Christ on the day when the tomb was opened. On the day when mortal flesh took on immortality. The exaltation took place in the days when the risen Lord appeared to Paul and to Cephas and to more than 500 men at one time. The exaltation took place when Jesus ascended far above all rule and authority and earthly power. It took place when Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father when he was enthroned on high. And the hyper-exaltation that Paul has in mind really is encompassed in, in what we typically think of as his resurrection and his ascension and his reign in heavenly glory. But it is also this exaltation that looks forward to the glory that he'll bring as he comes back at his second coming. And with that in mind, consider for a minute the way that even in exaltation, Christ shows us what true humility looks like. He again, even, even exalted, far above all rule and authority, even exalted to the, to the highest heights, he shows us what it looks like to be truly humble. Consider, think about the way that, 
that pride loves nothing more than to be recognized, than to be seen, than to be lauded by other people. Again, C.S. Lewis is, is helpful here. He says, if you want a test to see how proud you are, simply ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? How much do I dislike it when others refuse to take notice of me? That's what pride wants. It wants to be recognized. It wants to be publicized. It wants to be paraded before others. And that's how the proud heart works. Pride just itches to be recognized for even the smallest achievement, and it, and it chafes when we think that others haven't noticed the wonderful things that we've done. And if that's how our sinful hearts work in relation to silly little things, cosmically speaking, silly little things like our schoolwork, like, uh, like our family life, like our, uh, our work in our jobs, our relationships with our families, if that's how our sinful works, that we want nothing more than to be recognized. Imagine the temptation. If you had actually achieved something cosmically significant, something earth-changingly significant, consider the humility of Christ. He has redeemed a people from the guilt of their sin. He's established his kingdom on earth and in the hearts of his children. He has ascended to the Father and been enthroned before angels. His is the glory and the power and the honor forever and ever, world without end. And yet, what is our exalted Savior doing with that power and that honor right now? What is he doing with it? He's waiting. That's what the New Testament tells us. He, read, he was ascended to the Father. He sat down, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. When Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, patiently, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Our Savior is waiting. He's waiting for the Father's timing. He's waiting for the day when the full number of the elect will be brought in. He's waiting for the day when he will return on those clouds of Daniel chapter 7. Our Savior is waiting. That's not all he does. He, he doesn't wait idly. He still rules his church by his word and spirit as we confess together today. While he waits, he still intercedes for the saints. While he waits, he still upholds the universe by the word of his power. Our Savior is an idol. But neither is he anxious. He doesn't chafe. He, he doesn't chomp at the bit to be recognized and, and paraded before men. He trusts that the Father has fixed a day, which he tells us, and it twists our minds to think of it, that no one else knows, not even the Son, not the angels in heaven. The Father has fixed a day. And in humility, he waits. And it's a day coming when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess the Lordship of Christ. But even now, until that day, our Savior waits with humility, looking forward to that time when His Lordship will do what? Return praise to the Father. Shouldn't it go to Him? <laughs> it's His, isn't it? It's His glory. It's His, His exaltation. He has the name above every name. Why don't we, we think that it would return to Him? But, but this is the way love and honor and glory works within the Trinity, and again, it bends our minds that the glory of Christ will return to the Father. 
shows us what it is to be humble. You know, every, every Advent season, we take a few Sundays to contemplate the wonder of the Incarnation. It's right that we do that. It's, it's good that we do that. It's good to humble ourselves again under the reminder of the gospel, just as we do every week. It's good to hear the Lord who came into the world to save his people from sin. But according to Paul, the incarnation isn't just fuel for quiet contemplation. It's not just something we should, we should think warm thoughts about. The incarnation is a weapon. It's a defense in the hands of the Holy Spirit. It's a weapon to slay the power of our pride as he works in us. As he draws our eyes, not to ourselves, but, but to Christ. Because in the incarnation, Christ has displayed the highest form of humility. Though he had status above all others, he surrendered his privilege to serve his Father. And though he's exalted, he humbly waits for the Father's good timing. This is the example that we have of Christ's humility. And if we've been joined to him by faith, it's, it's also the mindset that the Holy Spirit is working in us. Brothers and sisters, look not to yourselves. Look not to what you can accomplish. Look not to how well you can serve the Lord, but look to Christ. What he's done for you, how he came down and how he gave of himself, how he emptied himself into our humanity, how he humbled himself unto death, and how God has raised him up. Look to him. Serve him. Return play, praise and and glory to the Father. That's the only way we ever make headway with, with humility, not to look to ourselves, but to look to Him, and to trust in what He has done, and to walk with Him in the way that He leads us by His Spirit. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord and God, Lord of all the earth, we thank You for this gospel word which we have received. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would work it into our hearts. We pray that your people, your children, would humble themselves before you and trust that at the right time you will lift us up. Thank you that the same pattern that was at work in Christ is at work in us. Help us, O oh Lord, not to chafe, to be recognized before men, but to submit ourselves, to count others as more important than ourselves, and to serve you with humility because Christ has called us his own. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.